Welcome to the Ancient Paths Podcast. This is episode four. Uh, my name is Kevin, and we're going to talk about the Incarnation uh, in this episode and kind of the rich history of what that means uh, for our faith and uh, kind of what that looks like uh, played out in our lives. Uh, this this mystery is like so central to the faith that it, it's kind of a, a, it's like a deep well and there's so much water in the well you can almost drown in it, I guess, you know, <laughs> or you, yeah, and it's just like, it's one of those things that we have to slowly kind of peel away and, and ask the Spirit to reveal this stuff to us because there's so much there. Uh, the fact that God became flesh and dwelt among us is just huge. And that changed the game uh, for, for everything. You know, like our conception of God, uh, our conception of our conception of ourselves as people. Uh, so that's really a, a, just a radical idea. <clears throat> you know, it's a radical truth that we carry in the Christian faith. And uh, it's something that really nurtures and gives us life. So we'll just kind of get into it. So the idea of Jesus becoming flesh and overcoming the powers of hell, sin, and death as a man, like I just said, was is huge. You know, and, he, and the fact that he did it as a man, uh, he didn't come down out of heaven, uh, you know, with, with a sword and with horses and angels and all that kind of stuff and just destroyed stuff, you know. He came in the form of a man like us, you know, wore a body like us, had a body like us rather, and and suffered and died. Uh, it's just it's a completely different idea than what pagans and even religious Jews at the time of Jesus thought the Messiah would do. I mean, they thought God was completely completely untouchable and so far removed from uh, from evil and from like the effects of of the fall. You know, because bad things happened to God. You know, God was crucified. Uh, you know, in the ancient mind, they thought that was just absurd that that would happen because God's so powerful in their in their minds that He's beyond being touched by that stuff, and the incarnation made God touchable by that stuff, by our evil, by our wickedness, and He turned it around in mercy and destroyed death and destroyed the powers of hell and destroyed all those things through His physical body, and that's kind of the mystery. Jesus enters into our suffering world and redeems it as a man. And it's such a powerful thing because as people, I think we often struggle with feeling like we failed. And even those of us who have been walking with Jesus for years and years, it's still, we, you know, we still struggle, we still stumble, and we're still human. And uh, we forget that Jesus suffered and experienced all the things we experience here on different levels uh, you know, of our human experience. Because not all of us... Uh, have the experience of our brothers and sisters in other lands, but Jesus is always present with those who are suffering. And he knows what that's like because he did. And he bore the entire weight of all that stuff on himself at the cross in a physical body like us. And so there's something really deep and encouraging about that, that I'm trying to understand myself, I guess, you know, Um, and that's kind of what we're going to look at a little bit today. We're going to look at the, <clears throat> Isaiah 7.14. Uh, this is sort of the beginning of th- the idea of Emmanuel. You know, it, it first enters into the Bible in Isaiah 7.14. And we'll read the scripture here, but a little background on it. There was a king at the time named Ahaz who was afraid of an imminent, 
of an imminent war between these two neighboring countries around ancient Israel, you know, basically. Uh, Israel was a small nation, and these huge powers were fighting, and, and it was going to affect the fortunes of Israel, basically. And he was pretty worried, pretty scared, and God gave him a sign. And it wasn't even really speaking, ultimately, to the time he lived in. It was speaking ahead, but uh, to ahead to what would happen. But it's sort of this idea that ultimately all war will cease, all striving will cease, all oppression will cease because of this sign that's been given that there's Emmanuel, which means God with us, is coming. So I'm going to read this. I'm going to start at verse 10 of Isaiah 7. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shale or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he also said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. He's talking about the kings that Ahaz is afraid of. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So all that to say that the sign, the ultimate sign of peace coming into the world is this person, Emmanuel, that a virgin will bear a, a child, which is a miracle. And that's crazy, you know, to our natural minds. But I think ultimately it's not so much about the virgin birth, which, you know, that's cool and it's a part of it, but it's about Emmanuel coming out, coming forth, which means literally with us is God or God with us. Um, so no longer is, you know, Ancient Hebrews thought of God in heaven. Now, that was God's realm. It was a realm of the spiritual world that we can't see, and he was king of it. But this is about the invisible king coming down to, to earth with us and being with us, present with us in a body. And I'm sure Isaiah didn't really even understand what he was saying fully. I mean, this didn't really make sense until Jesus came in person and then people retroact, you know, retrospectively looked at the scriptures and kind of understood what really happened. But this is such a, a mind-blowing thing and such a big game-changer that it was really unprecedented. Um, and this is what he's trying to get through, through the words of Isaiah, God is. Um, so this is one of the, the hallmarks of him. Um, and the Messiah being called Emmanuel, which means God's with, God with us, is something we must explore. It indicates who he is and what he desires. So if God calls the Messiah Emmanuel, gives him that title, that name, there's something in that that is teaching us about the character and nature of God, that God wants to dwell with us, that he wants to walk with us, that he wants to us to touch him and him to touch us. There's something really profound and very deeply spiritual about that. It's not just another name. It's a clue and in, in an indication of who God is. So we got to get that, man. <laughs> if we don't get that, we kind of miss the boat. Um, and later on in the New Testament, John, the Apostle John, expounds kind of on what this all means. Uh, the idea of 
of the embodied word of God, the embodiment of God in a body is so central to John's theology, it occupies a huge place. Um, in First John, the classic, in the beginning was the word and the word was God, that's all about that incarnational stuff. Um, that's sort of John's bread and butter, and that's what he's talking about here, that the unseen became seen and became touchable. Uh, so I'm going to read uh, a portion of John 1 really quick. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things are made through him, and without him not anything, uh, anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, John's establishing that this word, which is a Greek word, uh, which is an English translation of the Greek word logos, which means word, that <laughs> uh, this word was in the beginning with God, and he is God. But he's also this distinct person who is of is God but also is, is another being almost but he's still the same being <laughs> you know it's it's this weird deep mystery we can't get but basically the logos and John's usage is the embodiment of God's words so Jesus in a sense is God speaking creation into being and he's the agent of God's creation itself God the Father speaking through the Son, the Son as the embodiment of God's words, God the Father's words, who's always been with God from the beginning because he's uncreated, but he's speaking the world into being. And he's also the embodiment of the written word. And that's one thing Craig Keener talks about in his commentary on the Gospel of John is John may have saw uh, Jesus as the embodiment of the Torah, of the Old Testament. And, and, the, and he perfectly fulfilled the Old Testament and when he spoke, he was almost speaking the fulfillment of those words. Jesus said, like, you know, I've, I haven't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so what Jesus did and what he said, it was fulfilling all of those things. So he's this walking Torah, so to speak. Uh, he is the word of God, the embodiment of that. And we know from Genesis that it's God's words that spoke and, and everything came into being from there. There's power in God speaking. Um, and it's so central to the Bible. It's a voice that created the world, and it's also the voice of God that creates new situations, new paradigms for Israel's patriarchs and heroes. If you notice, God, spit, God spoke to Abraham and said, Go, you know, leave your father and mother, leave everything you have, and go to this new land I'll show you. It's God speaking. Like, he doesn't come to Abraham and slap him and and give him like some golden scroll or something, you know, <laughs> He's, he says, go, leave everything you know, and, and essentially come follow me and see. And that's what he does. And that word, the God's words, they still you know, have the same effect today. When they're coming and they, they come to us, they change us inwardly and change our circumstances because we're hearing something that really gives life because it's coming from the creator. And the same thing with, he said to Moses, like, you know, he appeared to him and he said, uh, he appeared to Moses and said, you know, go, go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And, and something just opened up for Israel in that moment because it's God speaking it into being. And John is basically saying Jesus is the embodiment of that. Because John kind of goes on, um, 
in verse 14 of John 1, this is really key. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's the hallmark back to Emmanuel. It's like it's echoing back. It's that same idea. John spent time with Jesus. He saw him in action. He saw the embodiment of God's words walking around and doing and speaking life and, and healing the, the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons by his words and by his actions. And only God's voice can do those things. And so that's why John made the connection between Isaiah 7 and all the all of the disciples did. But the Spirit opened that up and John was like, okay, this is this is Emmanuel right here. This is God with us. And uh, he kind of understood that and what was happening. Because um, God's voice changes and it creates new things and situations. Even the Hebrew word devar, which means word, it can mean a word or a deed. So in the Hebrew mind, words and deeds were connected. It isn't like in Western culture where what you say and what you do can be very different. <laughs> it was like, they kind of go together because Hebrew as a language, uh, it's, it's more of a limited vocabulary, but in, in those in those words, there's a lot of different meanings and nuances that, are, that you have to unpack. Um, but in Hebrew minds, words and actions are intertwined. You know, justice and righteousness go together. They're not separate. Uh, like sometimes it can be in, in the West. Uh, so Jesus is God physically doing good as God's embodied voice. Like I said, he was healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, doing all that stuff as God in the world. And uh, Greeks who um, read the scriptures and and came into the church later, like Greek culture, Roman culture, they tended to think more in abstractions. Uh, they separated thought and everything else. Uh, and they're the first people we know of to think in abstract thought and put a name to different types of thinking and different modes of, of uh, intellectual verbiage and all that kind of stuff by categorization. They were the first to really do that. Greek philosophy did that with uh, all those different elements of metaphysics and ontology and uh, all that stuff. But Hebrews didn't think in abstraction. They saw mystery and connection and all of on all of that stuff. You know, they saw uh, God's words and what He did as mysterious, but also uh, as basically God's business. You know, they didn't chop everything up into abstract concepts and process the world that way. They had different blocks of thinking. They 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 could see God and know God, but also know that his ways are still higher than them and, and they have to just accept the mystery sometimes. Like why is there evil in the world? You know, why why are those things happening? And instead of trying to maybe break it down and try to find a philosophical solution like a lot of Greeks and Romans did a lot of times they would just leave that into God's hands. Like the book of Job is a good example. There's really no answer to Job's question. God's answer to Job basically is, well, who are you? And it isn't like a mean way. It's just God saying, you know, Job, you're not me. You don't see everything like I see, but just trust me. Uh, So that's how Hebrews thought about those things. And that's how Jewish culture thought about those things. And they saw mystery and connection and, and all that stuff. And they had room for mystery. And so, they, the disciples may not totally understand that Jesus is the embodiment of God's words, that he is God and he's walking amongst them, but they, 
they kind of saw that in part, but they just accepted it for what it was because it's it is who he is. Like God is God, and they knew in their hearts this is the this is the one. And also not just by sensing and hearing that, they also deduced he was God by what he did, the signs Jesus did, the miracles he did, were demonstrating that he's Yahweh, you know, the biblical God. And that's very contrary to the pagans, the pagan world around them, because they saw the gods as sort of amoral and not for themselves. And the whole point of religious culture was to placate them, <laughs> you know. And in, in Christian thinking, especially Jewish Christian thinking at the time, it was God coming down amongst us and healing and restoring creation to what it's meant to be. And that's aligned with him again and growing in vitality and wholeness again. And that's when Jesus did miracles, he did heal, he did all those things to restore creation to what it's supposed to be. It wasn't just him doing it just to do it. He did it to bless. You know, he did it to do good. He didn't do it on a stage wearing a white suit to impress people and get money, you know. Uh, So not to throw shade on some people out there, but that's just the truth, you know. Um, and that's stark contrast to the pagan world, because to the pagans, idols or and images of the gods are what they desired essentially. Like they can, they can be an embodied desire or a fearful power to placate. But Christ embodied, Christ embodied though is the physical image of God. He is not an embodiment of our desires. He embodies God's own desires. So that's sort of the the difference there. Pagans by and large, you know, I think a lot of the pagan gods were idealized uh, things that they wanted. You know, Zeus was this sort of powerful figure that was pretty immoral, did whatever he wanted, but he was just a being of raw power, and people want that, and people worship that stuff. And it made sense that people put, I guess, put that as God, you know, in a sense, as, as one of their gods. And they had forces of nature they worshipped and, you know, forces of death that they worshipped and all those different things because they were at the mercy of those things. But the God of the Bible isn't nature. He created nature. And so when the living God walks among us, he's a God of love and he does good like Jesus did. And that's a stark contrast uh, he wasn't looking out for himself. He was looking out for his creation. And that's so different than the pagans. Um, <clears throat> and, the, and the pagan gods are also fearful beings to be placated and appeased. You know, they had a religion of fear, and it was a cult where you had to fulfill different religious rites or you wouldn't get what you asked for. And f- and our God is a God of grace and mercy who healed the blind because he's good. You know, that's what he, he did. And this is in such stark, stark contrast. Um, and there was no sense of hope or love, just force or, or an obedience with the pagans. And that's sort of why it's important for us because this was such a different idea that a lot of pagans at the time of the early church really got offended uh, by the gospel because they're like, well, how could God be a man? That's absurd. You know, how could he come down into a body like ours? And in the Judaism of the time, it's sort of a same, like a similar sentiment, but it's more, more like, well, why didn't Jesus overthrow Rome? You know, if he's the Messiah, you know, they, both groups were offended by Jesus, you know, 
and the early church was sort of caught in the middle. Uh, and that's sort of what was going on at the time. Uh, and Jesus defied all of what people hold dear as being important. You know, he is the embodied cruciformed heart of God's love, you know, which is a fancy word cruciform mainly for being, uh, for meaning that he is crucified in his heart. He has a, a life laying down love for creation. And that's what God demonstrated in Jesus. And that's so different than everything around at the time. And that's why it's such a holy mystery. And that's why it's also offensive to people, even to this day. You know, people get offended by the idea of the incarnation. But if God is truly agape love, like a self-giving, self-sacrificing love, it makes sense. Because he would come down to rescue. He would come down to bear the sins of the world if he's really love. If he's not, he wouldn't. And so that's sort of what that's about. Um, he created a world that reigned from him, but he won that world back through surrendering to the world's hatred of himself on the cross and returning it for mercy. And that's the, that's the mystery of the cross. Um, another point I'm, I'm, I'm kind of reading here and kind of going off my points and talking about them. So sorry if it's a little sloppy. Uh, God's incarnation through Christ was to liberate us from death because it was the physical effects of sin in the natural world that Jesus destroyed. Since God is spirit, Yet to assume a physical body to destroy death, which is a physical element. Christ also reveals God's nature and character through the Incarnation, whom would be unknowable and still hidden like he was on Mount Sinai. So kind of get into some deeper waters here. Uh, a lot of this, a lot of that stuff I just read was probably inspired by uh, St. Athanasius, who wrote a defense of Jesus' divinity. It's a uh, it's, a, it's about the incarnate logos. You know, he wrote a, an old book about that, I think, from the 4th century. Uh, but basically, we're talking about a very deep mystery that Christ reveals God's nature. Because, you know, on Mount Sinai, God was hidden by clouds, and there was thunder, and there was trumpet blasts, and all that stuff. But there was a bit of a barrier there. He was still hidden, and only Moses could go up. But in Christ, God comes down. God comes uh, in the very midst of us, you know, it's so different and it's so deep and that's his heart. That's, that was God's heart all along. I think with ancient Israel, they had to learn that he was completely other than the pagan gods of the nations. You know, he's not manipulable like the Egyptian gods were. I mean, if you perform the, the exact rites and ceremonies and the right magic, quote unquote, you know, you would get what you wanted. But the biblical God isn't like that. He can't be controlled or manipulated. He's God. And he's trying to teach that to the Israelites through the law and through the ceremonies. But ultimately, his heart and what he's really like is revealed in Jesus. Like we know what God looks like because of Jesus. And so God was hidden by a cloud and by fire and smoke and all that stuff in, in Exodus. But he fully comes revealed uh, and fully comes alive, so to speak. I mean, he is alive, but he fully becomes 3D in a sense for us in Jesus because he's walking amongst us. He's eating with us at the table. You know, he walks down our roads. He sweats with pores like ours. He bleeds blood like ours. He does all the things a human does like us. Like God lowered himself to be like us, and he wasn't offended by that. You know, that was his heart. It says in Revelation that he was crucified, you know, the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. So his heart was a crucified heart. He was already given himself up to what he would have to do to redeem creation even before that, because he's love. 
and that's what incarnation means to me, you know, what it means to the church. Because uh, Jesus is that bridge between the unseen and the seen. You know, he's the bridge between uh, the unseen God and and humanity. You know, he's the embodiment of, of God. And that's why it's such a huge thing for us. And that's how we can affect creation now. Uh, we, we are a people who embody or should, we don't, we don't always do it very well, but we should embody the spirit in our lives now. I mean, restoring creation, redeeming creation is the church's task. It's not to subjugate it by force, but it's to bring the kingdom, bring the power of the spirit in, in everyday life. And that's restoring creation because all of us now are the embodiment of the spirit because the spirit lives in us and we're not the spirit but the spirit dwells in us and he makes us holy. You know, that's like we're the temple and that's what Jesus was kind of talking about. Um, excuse me. So I want to talk about that for a second here. Incarnation as giving up oneself for others. This is another point we're making here. The incarnation was the father surrendering the son and the son giving up himself voluntarily to death for our sakes. Uh, there is something profound and life changing in this as even it is even though Christ is God, he considers equality with God as something to cling to, something not to cling to, sorry, for our sakes. Uh, Paul talks about that in Philippians 2, that even though he's God, he considered equality with God as something he doesn't have to hold on to in the, in the incarnation, like he lowered himself and became in the form of a servant. Uh, even though he's the king, he left his throne to be like us. And that's at the heart of the gospel and the heart of, of Paul's message in Philippians. And that's such a deep thing. Uh, there was a change in God through the incarnation, which is something that, you know, almost sounds kind of taboo. But, you know, we have to remember that God experienced things he didn't really necessarily experience before. Uh, death, suffering, and pain uh, in, in, in the physical form. You know, it, there's something here that uh, that is just incredible that God God didn't change his essence didn't change who is his character doesn't change who he is doesn't change but his experience as God in a sense changed because he gave himself to the human condition to be affected by our condition rather to be uh, pierced by sin because we pierced him to be hurt and abused by our abuse and but he that he was fully where he would do that because he's God. But there's something that God. Uh, this is really deep to me. But there's something really profound, in the sense that God learned something, even though he already learned it and knew it. <laughs> so I'm kind of talking about something that I can't really articulate well. But he experienced something new, uh, by the cross, by the incarnation, that he didn't experience before. Uh, he became. He entered into a temporal world with time and, and decay and physicality, whereas before God is just exclusively spirit. But bef- but after this, God became flesh. Even at this moment, Jesus is still a man. He's still the embodied logos of God in heaven interceding for us. You know, he's still a man. You know, like this changed God. Uh, this is this is incredible. Um, but we have to articulate that message well so it doesn't sound like you know blasphemy or something but this is such a deep thing we have to kind of get there was 
and this is one reason why it's such a scandal, because like I said before, Greeks didn't think that God would bother to come down and, and humiliate himself like this because he's so exalted. And the same thing really with ancient Judaism. Both groups were scandalized that this happened, but this is what happened. And this is the heart of God. And there's another element in here where we need to mention too that the incarnation was a form of the new temple, meaning that Jesus compared his body to the temple that was in Jerusalem. Uh, he, you know, he said in John 2 that if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up again in three days. And he meant his body. You know, this is the episode where Jesus was driving out the money changers and stuff in John 2. John brings that, uh, that story early in his gospel to illustrate a point here. And it's for a reason that Jesus is the new temple. He's the new meeting place between God and people now because the, the Jewish temple was destroyed in 70 AD, like the second temple was, because there was two of them. There was the first one that Solomon made, and that was destroyed and then by the Babylonians. And then later on, uh, King Herod and, and others kind of finally got the temple sort of into this pristine, you know, wonderful uh, you know, vestige. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, it was immaculate, and it was beautiful, and it was huge. And it was a symbol of, of Israel's national identity. But it was destroyed. The Romans destroyed it. And what the gospel is at its heart is that God came down and became like us, but the meeting place, the dwelling place of God isn't in buildings anymore. It's in the human heart. And that's one of the things Jesus is about. And when he says, like, you know, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days, he's talking about that. He's saying things are shifting and the 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 glory of God is walking around amongst them in Jesus because he is the glory and beauty of God. He's God the Son. And here he is walking amongst them. And at the same time, some people got it, some people didn't, but there was a shift happening, there was a change happening, and Jesus is the one who's bringing that change. The place of meeting with God is changing. Uh, what God looks like, and that finally that revealed heart of a crucified heart at the heart of God, that self-giving love is revealed forever in Jesus, and so a shift happened. And no longer does the divine presence live in a house. The house becomes our bodies because Jesus is that. You know, the incarnation is about that, that, that the spirit of God dwells in a body. It dwells in the man, Christ Jesus. And now that, that dwelling place shifts to the human heart. Um, it, it's interesting, too, because in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 10, the glory of God leaves the temple. Ezekiel sees a vision of that, that it physically leaves. It goes away. But at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit comes back. Uh, John dips Jesus in the river, and the Spirit descends on him. And it's like the glory of God returns. It returns and rests on the Messiah. Uh, so the, the glory departed, but the glory returned. So and not only is it returned, it's dispensed to all believers at the day of Pentecost. All of us have the Holy Spirit who received Christ. And are baptized in him. Um, 
because we're now the physical incarnation of Christ, you know, because, you know, we're not Christ, but Christ's spirit dwells in us. So what we do in his name, we're doing as him. That's why he says, it's like, uh, those who come to me and, and, you know, you know, he's, you know, when we did, did good to the beggar, we did good to the others, uh, to those who were impoverished and, and, uh, mistreated. When we do good to them, we're doing it as unto him. So there's something in that we have to kind of get, uh, that we are, we now become uh, a vessel, a temple for God's spirit. And this is because of the incarnation of Christ, uh, and the church is supposed to be that. So we are restored as God's image bearers because that's what we were meant to be uh, from the beginning, according to Genesis. And that image of God was fractured and destroyed. But now because of Christ, it's restored. The temple of our bodies is restored again. And we bear the image of God. We bear the image of Christ. And through the Spirit, we become living stones in the new temple. That's what Peter talks about in First Peter 2.4 that there's this new temple that's not made of stone, it's made of humans. <laughs> you know, it's because we all carry the presence of God because of our God who came in, came in the flesh. This is such a deep thing. And we have the mission now to fill creation with the knowledge of Christ and display the glory of God to the nations. And we incarnate Christ wherever we go. So the church's task isn't just to sit in a room on Sundays. The church's task is to subjugate evil and wickedness by the gospel, by bringing people home to God and liberate, letting the gospel liberate them, letting the power of Christ liberate them from their sins and their brokenness and to return home to the Father. And that's our job. And that's who our God is. And that's uh, what we're called to do. So that's what the incarnation ultimately means, that the image of God is restored again in us and we bear that image again and we bear it well because the Spirit's helping us bear it well because we still face temptation, we still face struggle, we still face uh, difficulty. But through Christ, we have this ability to overcome all of that because he's overcome the world. And so if, if, you, if you're listening to this and you're struggling or if, if you, you know, or maybe you don't even know Christ, if you don't know Christ, you know, know him, ask to receive him because uh, he'll change you. But also, if you if you do know him, and if you've been uh, struggling with that sense of just forsakenness and and just uh, kind of like a poverty of spirit, where you feel like you failed, Christ overcomes the world. It's not us, you know. And if if you've received the spirit of Christ, the spirit of Christ dwells in you, and you can overcome the world because of Him. It's not because of you. And uh, there's power in that. So how we how we take this mystery of the incarnation and make it something we can apply to our lives. I think one of the first things is it's, it's something to behold and a beautiful thing to worship is Christ incarnate. You know, it's, it's something that's so central to our faith because it's at the heart of our faith that God came down to be like us. And that's a form of worship. And it's a form of remembrance and to keep that holy, uh, and other, th- other ways we can integrate that into our lives is, r- is reminding ourselves that we are the embodiment of, you know, we are a dwelling place of God's spirit and that we do good by the spirit if we listen. So take time to listen of what good can I do today, Father? You know, ask the Father those things because that's what Christ did. Uh, and who knows what he'll do? Who knows what, you know, what a... 
what things open up and, and what kind of adventures you can have if you follow the Spirit, you know? And that's sort of the beauty of the Lord there in that. And and also recognizing that other people who we disagree with or who, or who maybe even hurt us or who do things that are, are evil and wrong, it's like they still bear the image of God and it's, and it's still broken, like we're all broken. But we have to start seeing the image of God in our fellow human beings or we're going to miss stuff because God has a passionate love and heart for people. I think the incarnation teaches us that God's heart is for people and it's not to destroy people, but it's to save people. Uh, if we're not motivated by that, by the love of God, our mission as a church is, you know, we've lost the foundation. We have to recover that. So, like, as this whole podcast is about recovering ancient paths and stuff, that's one thing we have to recover as a church is the the heart of God for people. Uh, because God became a person of <laughs> uh, flesh and blood, you know, to, to save us. That's so central. And if we don't have that heart for creation, then we, we're kind of missing it. So we really have to ask the Lord to help us there. And so that's sort of my, uh, my prayer uh, for the church. I'll, I'll pray. I'll, I'll close this podcast uh, with a prayer for the church. Father, I pray for the church that you would give us your heart for creation. God, you give us our, uh, your heart for people, and that, Lord, that we would be uh, vessels of honor for you, that bring the Spirit wherever we go, and that, Lord, allow you to set people free. And Lord, we ask this for the, an explosion of the gospel uh, all over the globe, and Lord, for the liberation of people uh, through your Son. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, take care, everybody. Uh, God bless.